Welcome to Food Stories. I'm Barb Sheldon, and today at my kitchen table is my dear and lovely friend, Luca Simmons. Luca and I have known each other for how long? Uh, 92 lives now. 92 lives together, doing all kinds of interesting things like classes (laughs) and learning, and I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is a pretty big honor for me because I super dig all the things you do and you just always have such a beautiful way of weaving things together. So I'm really excited about this. You're so dear. Thank you. Um, Normally I say something kind about my guests and I'm going to do that because there's lots of kind things to say about (laughs) Luca. But the thing is she has (laughs) this really great bio on her website, lucasimmons.com. And I just thought I would kind of read it because it's, I love it. So you, you may not remember what it says, Luca, but I'm going to tell it has a beautiful picture of you. And it says, Luca Simmons is a holistic nutrition practitioner for people who are wondering where their food and body groove has disappeared too, which I just love. I love, and I love this part too. As a former radio host and child number three of four, she isn't known for being quiet nor shy. No kidding. When she's not being all nutrition-y, you can find her daydreaming of driving her red scooter with a milk crate full of books on the back with her two favorites in tow, husband and daughter, on the hunt for the best cup of joe on the planet. I yeah, think- that's me. I think we start with the cup of Joe and then I'd love to hear your food story, but tell me what do you, where's your favorite cup of Joe on the planet? Okay. My, I have two that I can think of right off the bat. One of them, I think it had so much to do with, we, we were in England and we were planning to do some house sitting for someone who ended up not being able to leave. So we were five of us crowded in this tiny, tiny apartment that was just packed to the rafters with just stuff and so we escaped very early in our in our jaunt of when we were supposed to be there and ran away to this b&b out by bath where we stayed with cows on this dairy farm called salt box farms and then we went into bath for the day just to spend the day of course go see the baths of bath as you do and while we were waiting for the baths to open we just found this little coffee shop and there was this stone because everything in bath is made of stone all the furniture and all the buildings Mm -hmm. there was a stone bench on the outside and my husband dean and i both got a coffee we got a steamed milk for eliza she was about eight at the time and we just sat on this warm stone in that morning sun we had just escaped a super busy time in london never expected to find ourselves in bath and here we were and that was quite possibly the most delicious cup of morning coffee i have ever had in my life that's one of them the other one we were traveling through the states we were camping our way across is it highway 95 or 93 i can't remember 93 yeah yeah and we were driving across and we were in wisconsin we were in madison fell in love with Madison, ended up staying actually an extra three days and just pitched our tent on the outskirts and then just went into town and booted around uh, like on foot with our kiddo, finding all the parks that we could. And Madison is just a beautiful city to start with. There's this gorgeous market on the grounds of the legislature for the for the state because uh, it's the whatever they call it, like the it's the capital of the state. And, uh, and so we ended up finding off the beaten path, this old house that had been redone in this really cutesy cottagey kind of uh, restaurant almost, but more cafe. And that coffee was the most chocolatey tasting dessert without sweet 
absolute perfect mixture of the bitter notes and the reminder of other foods. And in that moment of just realizing, God, we just found this little gem that we chanced upon in Madison, Wisconsin. That was my second most favorite cup of joe. So I love coffee. And if ever anybody tells me I have to cut out coffee, they may want to step out of the way because I may punch them in the throat. (laughs) And I'll be directly behind you. Uh, uh, Well, folks, we are already deep into food stories with Lucas. (laughs) Those are two beautiful stories. Oh, my gosh. And it's not like you said, oh, Italy, you know, or uh, Costa Rica. Yeah. No, there's like a whole tale behind each of them. Yeah. Yeah. And is that not what food is, though? Like, and if I, well, that's actually how I feel. I just experienced the world is through food. Like it is, you know, they, everybody has one sense that seems to be a bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And I think my sense is really honed in on food mm-hmm. and experiencing the world through food. You like my entire life start to finish. Yeah. And so what a great segue then into telling us your food story. Where do you want to begin with that? Uh, When you're child number three of four, you have to be pretty swift at grabbing what's on the table, especially (laughs) because my older brother was, uh, we kind of joked that he would just go, (gasps) and then everything on the table had gone down his gullet. (laughs) So you sort of, and I mean, I'm partially joking. My mom actually made sure we were all fed, but my mom was, she worked out of the home and she had a lot of smaller jobs when we were little. And then progressed on to work outside of the home eventually once we were a little bit older. But when like through the entire time, totally from scratch food and to the point where I remember being like five or six and being told you need to open the tea bags and put it in the compost pile because we don't want the papers. They take too long. We were composting in our garden out back long before anybody else was. We had a farm like many. So I grew up in Northern Ontario and a lot of families have camps in Northern Ontario In Southern Ontario. It's the, it's the chalet or, the cabin or the the cottage, more the cottage, I guess. Oh, in BC, it's more cabin, but in Northern mm-hmm. Ontario, it's camp. And mm-hmm. we didn't have a camp. We had a farm and we had a farm that was about two hours away in Quebec. My family is all French Canadian in origin mm-hmm. for the most part, Irish, half, well, half Irish, half French Canadian. And so we had a farm growing up because I think my dad secretly he was a teacher, but he secretly wanted to be a farmer. And so we had like 50 acres where about two of them were just vegetables. And you know, when you have four kids, like that's the hired help. Mm -hmm. So we were the ones that helped to do the harvest. My parents worked really hard to build those gardens and plant everything. And we go and take care of it a few times a summer. And then all four of us would be there. And in fact, the photo that I sent you was us harvesting the peas that day. And I was shucking the peas into the bowl. So for you there. I was probably about five or six. I love it. You look yeah. so joyful. Like so happy. <laughs> oh, it was so fun. And we would clip the tops of the of the beans. And I'm sure we gave my parents grief. But I still remember thinking like, man, this is like, we'll never go hungry. And I remember that feeling of like, we, my parents were, were so good at um, putting up the harvest and maximizing what we could grow in our backyard. We had a really big backyard and about a, a third, maybe almost a half of it was the garden. There were, my my grandparents were next door. They didn't have a stitch of grass out back. It was all just garden. So there was also the farm where we had those two acres and it was like 
it just sort of felt like there was always some kind of food production going on. I remember my mom, my grandmother was next door. They would can and they would uh, pickle. They'd make zucchini relish. They'd make pickles. They'd make uh, pickled beets, pickled carrots, all kinds of canning. And that smell of vinegar to me is totally the fall scent. It's like when you smell that, oh, it means we're going back to school. Oh, it means we're soon going to have apple crisp. Uh, because we had an apple trail back. It means we're done with the rhubarb. It means like, you know, those, those scents, the just, it was uh, a rhythm setter for me. And it was how I sort of learned to, to, to understand that concept of time and how there were different things you did. Like my mom, I remember she would do the rum toff where it was like fruit that you conserved with a bunch of sugar and a bunch of rum, I'm assuming with some kind of alcohol. And she had this huge, glass bell of a like it was monstrous in the basement and then all the french canadian adults would come at christmas and they would all get ripper and drunk well they'd probably hate for me to say that but they'd all get a little tipsy <laughs> and like i remember the smell of that i remember like what happened when my parents um we had a small butcher in town in in north bay and my mom would go and she'd order half a cow and half a uh, veal one year or half a cow, half a lamb the following year. So we always, you know, at a certain time of year, you knew it was that time because you went and helped to gather all of the meat and to put it into the freezers down in the basement. Like there's just food for me because my mom was, it was such an important piece for her. It became the way that I felt the rhythms of the year. And it's they're now totally my touchstones I come back to. Absolutely. When I was 18, I thought she didn't know anything because I was a jerky 18-year-old. And, you know, I'm going to go eat the Lipton noodles and sauce and Mr. Noodles. And I'm going to eat cheese whiz because what do you know? And that's everything that I wanted. And I veered so far away from what I grew up with. And I feel like since the age of 29, I turned around and came back and went, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me try again. Yeah. Sorry. And I feel like I'm trying to make up for that sort of window of 10, 12 years that where I seemed to stray thinking that I knew what I thought was mm -hmm. right, going along with what all my other friends had and going for all that food that never made an appearance in our house. I mean, we had cheese whiz on occasion. And we had cheese slices, mm -hmm. but it was, it was such a different, like, I remember even, God, I'm going to talk for seven hours. I remember the whole, like, you know, you're not supposed to eat butter because butter is going to kill you. You're supposed to eat margarine. And my mom thinking like, okay, well, I really, I really want my children to live. Like I want grandchildren and she has six. So she did well, mm -hmm. but I remember her going to Quebec to go buy the margarine because in Quebec, their margarine was not colored. It didn't have artificial coloring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she'd buy a, like a whole flat of it when we'd go to our farm and she'd come back mm. with that margarine and that's what she'd give us. <laughs> and her butter was stashed in the pantry because she couldn't, she didn't want to give it up for herself because she loved the taste so much. And we joke now that like her butter and the, she never wanted the margarine for herself. She always used butter. Like that was a big saving grace. And she knew all along. And man, if, if we wouldn't have all just paid attention to what my mom was onto and what she felt in her gut. And she just thought like, no, I don't know about this. I mean, I'll go for the non-colored margarine because I suppose I want my children to live, but I'm not giving up my butter. And now I think, God, you were so ahead of your time. Like she was always ahead of her time by looking back and honoring that wisdom that was just how you did food before. And she had that sense of, mm, I don't know about this. <laughs> and she'd shirk it. And then, 
you know, she comes to our houses now, we're all grown now, and some of us have children. And she's like, man, what I would have done to have had a Costco, what I would have done to have pre-made foods that were cheaper. So she sees the convenience of it. But we're now tuned into, yeah, but now we're missing the deep nutrition that you just inherently had in all the foods you were making. So there's this new appreciation for it, for sure. It is lovely that she, you know, sure, she was listening to the science and she was still trusting her gut and trying to do the best that she could. So, you Mm -hmm. know, avoiding food coloring even, right? Even back then. It's interesting too, how you came around then to returning back to teaching and kind of passing her wisdom along to your students in your classes. Yeah. And tapping into, you know, what, what is the food that fed our genetics until now? Mm-hmm. And why do we think if we shift it so drastically, so quickly right. that we think it's going to help us get healthier? Like we, you need to question, like my parents really raised us to question and to be, you know, to think our own thoughts and come to our own conclusions and be critical thinkers that way. And I think that's really served so much of how I approach things like, and I, you know, I still, I question to this day, I question many things. I question the whole, no one should be eating grains. Really? Really? I don't know about that. Uh, Nobody should be broad sweeping statements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We should, nobody should be eating dairy because no animal eats the dairy of another animal. Really? Have you done research or are you just spewing something else you've heard? Do you know that ants, uh, they harvest aphids and they gather the aphids for their milk? Oh, 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 but that, that, that doesn't translate to humans and cows. Oh, how about the many hundreds of generations that you came from who all fermented their dairy and made it into yogurt and turned it into cheese. And in lean times, that's actually what carried them through. Do you want to deny their existence? Are you trying mm-hmm. to pretend that never happened? Why right. do we feel this need to erase the people before us, for God's sake, you're here because of them. Smack yourself upside the head, honey. No, don't. <laughs> no, but don't. like, be hi. kind. But yes, <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Yeah. 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 And so in saying all that in your return, you know, through the journey of Velveeta cheese slices and, and um, that kind Delicious. of thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Seductive food product. Yeah. Yes. Now you've come back to real food. And so my next question yeah. for you is what's your favorite food? Is that a hard question for you to answer? Oh, yeah. It's like if I had 300 children, which one's your favorite? Well, each let me, of them. Let me say it this way then. What food brings you the most joy and why? You can't, you can't ask that. <laughs> what is the food that brings me most joy? Well, I mean, if I was to winnow it down to one, it's probably scallops. Oh, for lots of reasons. Yeah. yeah. For and And I mean, there's a sentimental reason for me. Like I remember when I was a kid, I used to go pick clams with my grandfather. Like he was you know, he was teaching us on the, uh, on the Gaspé coast and Gaspésie. Uh-huh. They were all Acadian. My mom's uh-huh. side of our family is all Acadian. So there's this undercurrent of this cultural identity that I never really appreciated until actually about a year ago. Um, and he was, uh, he was a Cormier and he, you know, he like super frugal people. When I was growing up, it was the poor people who ate lobster. Ha 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 ha. Like, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. And we would go digging for clams and we'd go find oysters. And we, we never actually got scallops. But when I have, I, I prefer the taste of scallops to the taste of clams. I like clams, but I prefer scallops. Like they're just, they feel like they are the entire ocean in one bite. And they are a way to remind you that 
we all come from the ocean originally. Like when you go back, you know, to the start of the genesis of how we got to be where we are, like it's kind of that touchstone of like, I come from the water, I come from the oceans. This is a part of what has fed all of the people who've led to me. There's also this sense of honoring the Acadian people I came from where seafood was a massive, massive, massive part of their culture, the Irish background that I come from, where a lot of seafood and shellfish was absolutely at the core of that. So there's kind of a, it feels like it's the, it's symbolic of the food of the people I come from. It's also this food, like so much of what inspires me too, is we've been told all of these different, and I put in quotation marks here, food rules Mm-hmm. that sort of feel like they're out of nowhere. And then they're kind of a hot topic for six months or two years or 20 years. And then they move on to something else. So we've been told to not eat shellfish for, you know, different reasons along the way. And yet how many of the people who had foraging at the core, which is all of us until a hundred years ago, PS, how many of us subsisted on a major part of our diet coming from the ocean? Well, what do you mean you want to take that out? What's wrong with you? What do you mean we can't eat shellfish? What do you mean we should no longer eat fish because of heavy metals? How, and and I mean, that goes a step further, which I, that's going to get me down a rabbit hole, but like there's all of these, don't eat these foods, it's bad for you. Don't eat these foods, it's bad for you. Wait a second. Is it only bad for you or is there benefits as well? And further to that, if some of it is bad, is my role in consuming some of these foods part of actually taking on some of the heavy metals? Are we not all supposed to be accumulators of things along our lives? What makes us so special that we don't need to accumulate heavy metals? We're part of the natural world. We are part of the systems in place to help make this world work. What makes us think that we're apart from that? We are a part of it. We're not apart from it. We're not special that we don't get to have heavy metals. Are heavy metals terrible? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can drive a bunch of other stuff. But to the point of taking an entire category of food out that is actually really thyroid supportive. Guess whose family has thyroid issues? Mine. Mm. Are we, is part of that because we're getting further away from the food that fed our ancestry and our genetics that got us to today. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't think that you can erase a whole huge part of your history. Uh Uh-uh, take a step back. Mm. So what I'm really hearing you say, well, first of all, you know, that that's a radical point of view that you have, but you're taking um the lessons in history and sense memories of our ancestors and you're really relying on that and leaning into that in your own life in your own cooking and your teaching as well it, it certainly influences absolutely every aspect of what it is i do and further to that when i'm you know i work a lot with people one on one and when i'm working with folks to try to identify okay well let's figure out how to bring the good food and you together because that's mm-hmm. what i call my company good food mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. and It's different for each person. You know, somebody who has a Ukrainian background has a completely different food history and culture than I do from my Acadian ancestors who were on the East Coast of Canada, what's now known as Canada, from the 1616 was when we first recorded uh, Mm. somebody who was kicked out of France because, oh God, there's like a whole history there. But anyway, like it's just (laughs) so interesting to me. We all come from different people. And different ways of eating. Different places. Yeah. And And like we learned in school, the biochemical individuality too. We are all different internally in our guts and our 
everywhere. And we should be listening to that and honoring that. And I do, I agree with you. I, I think that oftentimes we will adopt uh, a stoicism around a paradigm that actually then isn't serving our bodies, our brains, our guts, our health, right? Our lifestyle. And also, yeah. you know, there's, there's the economic and the environmental factors to consider as well. And mm-hmm. sometimes these very um, rigid ways of eating are just not achievable mm-hmm. for some people's economic, like for their pocketbooks. Right. So if we were able to listen, deeply listen to our ancestors and mm-hmm. the wisdom of what's around us and, and the earth, maybe we would, maybe we would be able to access some foods that we didn't even know we could before. And also listening to the food ways of the people who are currently on the land where you call home right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I think of this whole Mediterranean diet piece, and I think there's so many great attributes to the Mediterranean diet. It's high in anti-inflammatory things. It's really high in lots of plant and polyphenols and all of these nutrients that are so health giving, health promoting, like who cares? Well, I sort of care. But if, you know, they also conveniently omitted the food from Turkey, which is part of the Mediterranean region, because they thought it was too high in meat and it didn't fit the story they wanted to tell, for example. So, you know, it's just this selective piece. And then you start talking about those foods. Well, where are those foods naturally grown? Well, in the Mediterranean area. I'm currently calling Calgary home. Can I grow rosemary? Can I grow all of those foods that you talk about? here in Calgary? Heck no. Is that the way that the people in Calgary, what we now call Calgary on Treaty 7 territory, is this what that food was like? No, you ate bison. You foraged for a lot of wild greens. There's a lot of mustards that grow in this area. There's a lot of berries like Saskatoon's. So there was a lot, like the way of eating, and I am not an expert in Indigenous knowledge from this area, But I really think part of the invitation is now to take a step back, consider who you came from, consider where you are, consider the ancestry of the people who cared for the land, and listen to what the wisdom is from the people who lived and thrived on this land and what those food ways were. And how could, you know, there's, what if there's things we can't measure about bison, bison that has figured out how to thrive in this environment. What if when we consume that bison meat, we are now inheriting some of that ability to thrive in the current conditions that we don't know how to measure because we don't have the instrumentation for it yet. Like, do we need a microscope to tell us? Or why don't we just step out of our egocentric ways and go, how can I be a part of the system that works here? What Mm -hmm. is the system? How do I observe it in the world around me? How do I learn about the ways that have been shared traditional knowledge amongst the traditional people of this land? And how can I support their work and also honor their work and bring some into what I'm doing? And how do we all become um, better equipped to thrive in the land where we currently are, knowing our past, where we came from, where we are, right? So that to me sounds like Lucas' food story right there. Yeah. That's the philosophy. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. You're a midwife to help me figure this out. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. I have a fun question for you next. Yeah. Let's talk about music. Now you, (laughs) first of all, were a radio host. That's why you have this gorgeous voice and you're very connected to music. Mm -hmm. And I, I did ask you to bring some songs along that connect you to music and food together, songs to cook by. Do you want to share a couple of those? 
with me? Yeah, I would love to. I also played music. That's actually how I snagged mm. my husband. I was playing at a little folk club in oh. Toronto called Say What? And he was like, mm, who is that? And I was like, well, ah, I guess I don't need to write songs anymore. What did you um, play? What did you play? <laughs> I played guitar and I sang. But I was really like the, you know, the 24 year old. And it was totally real at the time where I was processing emotions and hard things and past trauma. And, you know, as you do, like little T trauma, big T trauma, like all of the things. Yeah. And you're just trying to make sense of the world. And music was just a really great outlet for me at the time. And I lived in Guelph. I went to university in Guelph and the Guelph music scene was insane. And it was just a brilliant time in the early to mid nineties and late nineties was like, it was like, it was almost like, the next Halifax. Halifax was a hotbed of music that I think a lot of people knew. And Guelph was kind of hot on its tails. We had King Cobb Steely. We had a connection with the Rio Statics a little bit. We had uh, some local bands that were great. So I sort of came through in that scene and then lots of us moved to Toronto. And so music has always been, I have 20 years of classical music before that, that I was playing piano and love classical music. So music, I really thought in my life was going to be the driving force because it just lit me up. And I find it quite surprising at the age of 50 to turn around and go, huh, it was actually food. That <laughs> actually surprises me. I really actually thought I would be about music. But anyway, so saying all this, uh, yes. yeah, the songs, the songs. Okay. So mm, I'm I was like, now with that well, history. <laughs> Well, it's maybe going to be a little anticlimactic, perhaps, because five <laughs> songs is hard. But <laughs> that's okay. You don't have to do all five. Just which ones inspire you? Okay, so I picked five at due to five different times in my life. Okay. And I started with ABBA because I grew up in a house where my dad played records and he handcrafted playlists for us that he would play for us on occasion. <laughs> we weren't allowed to touch the record player. And so he pulled out ABBA. We had ELO, I was contemplating putting ELO in the mix in uh -huh, there. Uh -huh. He had some Gordon Lightfoot because he really loved uh, the singer-songwriter. He loved Ian Tyson, loved Buddy Holly. So that's all the music that I grew up with that really had a big influence. My mom really loved Harry Belafonte and she mm -hmm. listened to a lot of musicals as well so musical theater was a big part of our growing up so I picked ABBA to kind of represent that and then I moved on to I mean there were different stages of my life but Martin Sexton with the song Glory Bound makes me cry every oh, time beautiful. and is quite possibly one of my favorite life moments catching him playing at the River Run Theater in Guelph one year I used to do sound and I was helping set up. And then for some reason, I was able to actually catch the show. And I was, uh, yes, I was a sound guy, but I was uh, sitting in the audience and he played the last note of Glory Bound and he just held it there. And the entire 2000 of us collectively held our breath and waited for that last note to carry and hold. And he, and he was just so into it. And then he looks up like 20 seconds into the hold of this note. And he makes this really surprised face. And I'm just getting chills thinking of it. And all of us for the next 20 seconds, our eyebrows all raise and we're like, what have mm -hmm. we just witnessed? So every time I hear the song Glory Bound from Martin Sexton, I just, there is the power of music and one person singing their song and their tale. Mm -hmm. And I play it at least probably twice a week right now still. So one of my favorites. And then I picked Stars. I was trying to pick. So when I worked in radio, my whole beat was the Canadian independent music scene, which was my baby. And it has been still 12 years after no longer working in radio is still 
such a big uh in gross play how do you say that in english like it's a big owie <laughs> like it's a big oh. so bruised that i don't get to dive into the canadian independent music scene every day it yeah. still really hurts that i don't get to the canadian independent music scene is so inventive so creative so particular to the regions they come from and so well connected and just a marvel to witness and and to be a loud cheerleader to and i just felt so lucky to've had that pocket of time where i was on a radio platform that they sold my show to people in the states which then broadcast and i got to talk about the canadian independent music scene mm-hmm. and stars and their song elevator love letter is kind of indicative of all of that for me so that would be on the list and then these days i'm listening to a lot of soul and funk mm-hmm. when i'm cooking in my kitchen and I sharon love jones cooking to funk yeah right absolutely. sharon jones and the jack kings mm-hmm. oh my god mm-hmm. i cried when she died but she was mm-hmm. a woman who came up in her 40s like she was working at rikers mm-hmm. before this mm-hmm. and then she decided at 40 no i'm going to be a soul singer cuz i sang gospel in the church as a young girl here she is singing with these gentlemen that they are Amazing. So Sharon mm-hmm. Jones and the Dap Kings Love with uh, You'll Be Lonely is kind of the one song I wanted to pick. So that is awesome. And my last one is like current. Uh, well, I mean, it's a few years old now, but it's a song from a band called Wet Leg who are out of the UK. And because oh. I always wanted to be that guitar chick and rocker yeah. chick that I never, ever got to be because I was too shy and too folky to like take out my uh, press on nails and just be a little bit more gritty. So Shay's Long from Wet Leg is just- Okay, that one I haven't heard, kid. but I- <laughs> I will yeah. add it to the list. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what leg? Oh, yeah. wonderful. Well, we will put all those on while we're cooking whatever recipe you're going to share with us. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, yeah, I do. So the, I had to think about this long and hard and I yeah. was going between a few different things. And then I came back to, well, uh, hi, tourtière. So of course. like, how do I not? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share the recipe with you and I'll give you actually, um, a grain-free version for anybody who has a lot of food sensitivities or they're not able to consume gluten or other things if you have histamine issues Mm because a lot of my work so I work in nutrition and a lot of who I work with are people who have complex health issues Mm -hmm. and my work is in helping them figure out how food can help them feel better Mm -hmm. and so this tourtière is such a simple simple thing that is, this is the Acadian way to make tortillas. So a lot of people will think of tortillas as this ground beef kind of concoction. And uh-huh. they, you know, well, I guess that's one version. But my version is the original version. And it was called tortillas because in tourterelle is a pigeon. So the original meat was actually pigeon meat mm. that you would make these with. But, you know, you can't get pigeon meat anymore. So my grandmother used to make it. My mom's made it for years. And it's a combination of beef and pork together. And you really just simmer it in nothing but salt, maybe even pepper, but probably not. And you just simmer it with a bit of water at the bottom. And in the last of the six hours you're cooking it, you add six onions. So that's all it is. And it's just slow simmered until the point of falling apart. And then you put it in a meat pie, like in a pie format, and you serve it with a condiment of sorts. And at my house, it was always zucchini relish that my mom and my grandmother would put up. But you could do it with ketchup. You could do it with HP sauce if you wanted, like whatever condiment you wanted. So... I thought I should totally share the Acadian way, which yes. in our circles is the right way. <laughs> <laughs> 
but a really massive part of the culture I came from that I never really appreciated until fairly recently. And so for me, like, yeah. Oh, I'm thank you. I'm really excited to try it. And we will link both versions, I guess, in the show notes. So people have the grain free and the traditional version. We'll do both. Yeah, sounds great. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I can tell everybody, hands down, when when I am not feeling great, it's one of Luca's recipes always that just supports me. It makes me feel better. Your food, your recipes are so supportive and gentle and and um, vitality giving. That's what I love about the food that you create. So I'm I'm so excited to try this because I oh, just know that I'll, I'll feel good. No, it's true, sister. It's true. I, I love your food. Love it. Love yeah. it. And and so do a lot of people around me. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but you've helped so many people in, in our you know community um, that sometimes people will text me and say, oh, I'm making Luca's um, uh, pumpkin pancakes or I'm making Luca's this or that. And it, it's it's just cool to see people using what you're creating. You yeah. know, you, you, That's don't even, awesome. you don't even know you have a whole thing. Is there anything Thank that you. you would like to tell us about you? You, you have this great book that you've. That, yeah. That yeah. So, so I. On with oh, my God. Did partner. we? So, yeah. 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 My sweet friend, Tracy Reed, and I put together a book we call Histamine Haven. And it is a cookbook. And it's also a whole science behind what's going on when histamines are an issue. And the tricky thing is that when you have a histamine issue, you don't necessarily know it's histamine driven. Or you might, but you don't realize how deep it goes and everything that's interconnected with it. So our work is in helping people figure out, especially with complex health issues like mast cell activation syndrome, like POTS, like Ehlers-Danlos, like chronic fatigue, like fibromyalgia, like all of those big guys, IBS, SIBO, like those things. Our work is in helping you reduce what's driving your body to not feel safe because that's what happens in a body that has histamine issues is not feeling safe. So we very deliberately call ourselves histamine haven to help you build your safe haven. So we have a cookbook. There are many different recipes. The tourtière recipe uh, came out after we put the book together. So um, if you like the tourtière, you might want to get the cookbook. So we mm-hmm. we support people. We're, we're currently right at the time of this recording. We're building a subscription service for helping people go through the steps of identifying what's going on, getting to the root, identifying those triggers and putting in the food as medicine to do repair and to set up safety in the body so that your symptoms can reduce. Absolutely brilliant. Luca, I could talk to you always and forever for hours and hours. And I would love to hear so many more of your stories because you have so many good ones. (laughs) Same, same, same. (laughs) And you always help remind me about how food and memory and sense are connected together. Thank you for that. I, I really, I think that's something that we often forget because we're getting our food passed through a drive through window, you know, and um, it's a good little lesson. It's a very present moment, very mindful lesson to think about slowing down and tasting our food and smelling it and, and thinking back to what those memories trigger. And that's so good for our nervous systems, right? Isn't it? Is that not a part of how we belong? And when you belong, you actually create even more safety in the body. Like, God damn, if we're not all just here to look after one another and to feel good. That's oh, that's my goal. Sister, that's right? we're we're gonna stop it right there because that's I've been saying that all week. Amen to that. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, again, I will link playlist, recipes, and um book website and everything in the show notes i love you very much you're amazing thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time
Thanks, pal.